passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Today we are continuing in our study of the Gospel of Mark. We are going to be picking up in Mark chapter 3, verse 30, and this is one of the more uh, familiar miracles. I think I need some lights up here, by the way. This is one of the more familiar... Whoa. Flashbulbs. This is one of the more familiar miracles in the Gospels. This is the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And we've seen that Jesus has incredible, miraculous powers. We've seen how Jesus can heal the sick. He has cast demons out of people. He's even had the power to calm a storm and have it go dead still simply at the authority of his word. And recently, we've seen in the last two weeks that Jesus has now delegated some of that power to his apostles. He has sent them out, and they have also been healing the sick and casting out demons and raising the dead. And then last week, we studied the death of John the Baptist. And uh, what we see today is that the apostles will return after the death of John the Baptist. And sort of this is the time to regroup after they have gone on their mission trip. And Jesus had sent them on a mission trip into the area of Galilee. And we may not know much about Galilee, so let me tell you a little bit about it. And they were to go out into Galilee, which is actually small geographically. It's roughly 50 miles by 25 miles, and most of it actually is water. It's the Sea of Galilee is sort of the center of that area. Nevertheless, it was a very densely populated area. Around the Sea of Galilee, there was approximately 200 villages, and that is where Jesus has been ministering. That's where Jesus has sent his apostles out, and they were in six groups because he sent them out in pairs, two by two. And at this point, we are having the apostles have returned, and Jesus is going to debrief with them. And he reserves for their return what is probably his most amazing miracle in Galilee, which is the feeding of the 5,000 we're going to study today. Now, before we look at this miracle, I think it'd be fun to just give us a little preview of the rest of the life of Jesus from this point forward. Because you can sort of see it. There's not much left in Jesus's life if you look at this geographically. Go ahead and put that first map up there, Jeremy. Okay, you see he's uh, right there. He's going to be on the top of the Sea of Galilee. He's in Capernaum. From here, he's going to go north to Tyre and Sidon, which are Gentile cities. He'll be out of the Jewish region. After that, he's going to come back down south, and he's going to take the route to the east, which you can see is to the left, or actually to your right, excuse me. And what he'll do is he'll go through the area of the Decapolis. He'll go through Gentile territory and then ultimately return to Capernaum. And then, go ahead and put the next slide up, Jeremy. What he'll do from there is he'll begin making his way south. He'll head his way south to the area of Judea. Judea is the countryside surrounding Jerusalem where ultimately he will go into Jerusalem while he will die on the cross in our place for our sins. Thank you very much, Jeremy. So what you can see is from here, at least geographically, you can almost see the end of Jesus' life from this point forward. He has a northern trip, 
back down south and hangs his way to the right, and then ultimately down to Jerusalem. Now, this meeting of this miracle that he does here in Galilee that we're studying today is without doubt probably his greatest miracle in this region. Matthew and Mark tell us that he fed 5,000 men on this day, but actually it is a Excuse me, I meant to say Mark and Luke say he fed 5,000 men. But Matthew adds a little bit more information, which I put in your outlines for you. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So that means if you throw in maybe one woman for every man and a couple of kids running around, this could be 20,000 people that he fed at one time. This is a massive quantity of food that Jesus creates in his own hands out of nothing. This is a miracle like creation itself where Jesus creates things out of nothing. And this is what Jesus is doing. To place this uh, in sort of time, the year is roughly 29 A.D., We know this takes place in the spring, which would put it in the March and April category, which is the very time of year that we're in. I thought that would be fun for you to know. We can tell this because the Gospel of John, which talks about this miracle, says it took place around Passover, which is in the spring. Also, Mark describes the green grass that they sit down on, which only happens in this region in the spring. Now, how does this miracle compare to the other miracles that Jesus did? There are only two miracles that are found in all four Gospels. One of them is the resurrection. This is the other miracle that is found in all four Gospels. It is so significant that when the Gospel of John takes an extended time to talk about it, the response of the people to this miracle is they want to forcibly make him king. That is how impressive it is. In addition, the next day, even though Jesus goes to the other side of the Sea of Capernaum, the same group of people hunt him down, wanting them to make him miraculous breakfasts since he made him miraculous dinner the night before. They are so captivated by this, they want more food from him. It's almost like they want what I call the Jesus welfare system. Free health care and free food. And I mean, think of the health care system. No deductibles, no premiums, instant healing. Your relative can even die and bring him to Jesus and he can still bring him back from the dead. Perfect health care. And Jesus apparently is a really good cook too when it comes to fish and chips. Because that's what they just want more of all the time. Now, as we get into studying this miracle, I I like to look at things under some headings. And uh, the way I'd like to just sort of group group this miracle as we study it is let's look at this as Jesus as our good shepherd and what we can learn about that from here. The first thing we learn is the good shepherd provides rest. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. So here we are, the apostles have returned from their mission trip that they went out on just before this, before the death of John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist may have died while they were on this trip. We don't know how long the short-term mission trip lasted. It may have been weeks. It may have been months. Maybe the reason they all came back is because they heard that John the Baptist died. We don't know. Most likely they returned to the area of Capernaum because that seems to be Jesus' home base of operations in the area of Galilee. But when they come back, you need to understand they come back very tired. They come back exhausted. Remember what we've seen with Jesus, that the crowds are always crushing him, pressing into him to touch him because if they could touch Jesus, they could be miraculously healed by Jesus. So he's harried by the crowds. Imagine if you're the apostles and you now have that same ability. What would it be like for you in the crowds, in the cities that you went to? Constantly people wanting to touch you. Constantly people wanting to be with you. So the apostles are exhausted. In fact, it says this in the very next verse. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going. They had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. These are very weary apostles. They're tired apostles. They're exhausted apostles. And they're hungry apostles. So you could say they're pretty skinny apostles. Because they haven't even had enough time to get a fair meal in here. And I love Jesus because he recognizes this. The exhaustion. He, he is the one who takes the initiative to get them away from the crowds to go to some place desolate so they can get a break. I think that even the, the boat ride to get where they were going was a, a welcome break. Because on the boat, at least you can't have the crowds reaching out to touch you and the crowds reaching out to grab you. Mark doesn't tell us where Jesus took them. But Luke, remember it's in all four Gospels, so you can get other color from the other Gospels. Luke does tell us where Jesus took them. Luke says he took them to Bethsaida. Now go ahead and let's put that up on the map. Capernaum is the dot on the, on the left side. Bethsaida is the dot on the right side. And so you see, he actually didn't take them too far away. It's only about four miles uh, by boat. It would be eight miles by land because you have to go around the northern tip there. And technically, and this will become very important when we continue our study next week, otherwise you'll be confused, he does not go into Bethsaida. He is trying to get away from people, not trying to get with more people. Where he goes is just to the east of Bethsaida, which is this sort of a rural area, which is relatively unpopulated at this point. So that's how he is getting people away, getting his apostles away from people for a break. Thank you, Jeremy. Bethsaida is actually Hebrew. It's just a combination of words. Beth is the word for house. Seda is the word for fish. So this is a fish house. This is a fishing village. It's actually a relatively small village on the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes you'll see it called Bethsaida Julius. 
You wonder how this Greek name Julius was appended to the end of it. I'll give you a little backstory. Last week we learned about Herod the Great. Remember that? Herod the Great, he, when he died, he divided his kingdom up into four pieces and left it to four of his sons, who were then called the four tetrarchs, which means a ruler of a quarter. Last week we looked at Herod Antipas, who was the one who was one of Herod the Great's sons who actually killed John the Baptist. This area is ruled by Herod Philip, another one of Herod the Great's sons. Herod Philip was trying to get real buddy-buddy with Rome, so he decided to name Bethsaida, Bethsaida Julius. Julius was the name of Caesar's daughter. So when you're trying to name your towns after Caesar's daughter, you're trying to get a little extra money from good old Rome. It's sort of essentially what he was doing. Bethsaida is a uh, town where four, at least four of the apostles came from. Peter was born there. Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel were all born at Bethsaida. The apostles and Jesus have visited Bethsaida many times. There has been many miracles done in this small town. But just so you know, Bethsaida, even of all the miracles that were done, even of all the gospel light that was given, because no doubt the apostles went there on their short-term mission trip, as well as Jesus, they end up rejecting Jesus. The Bible talks about this in Luke. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, remember where Tyre and Sidon were? We just saw them on the map. They're up north. They're the Gentile areas. They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable on the, in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Jesus, as I said, has, will do or has done a number of miracles in Bethsaida, as well as the apostles. And the feeding of the 5,000, which is the greatest miracle in this area, will take place right outside of Bethsaida. But they ultimately reject Jesus. And Jesus says, it would be better for Tyre and Sidon, which were pagan seaport cities. You know, you know what a seaport city is like when guys have been on a boat for a long time and they come in off the boat and the, the, the city they go to is usually not a good place to go to, but sort of like Las Vegas. It's like Sin City. He says it would be better to be in Sin City on the day of judgment than to be in Bethsaida or to be in Capernaum, which have had so much light about Jesus, but ultimately rejected Jesus. When it comes to eternity, if our name is in the book of life because we have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, not because what we have done, but because what Jesus has done for us, we will be in heaven for eternity with him because of our faith in him. But the Bible tells us that for everyone else, they will be judged and sentenced to hell, and hell will be hotter for those who are greater sinners because hell is a fair and just response to sin. The greater the sin, the greater the punishment. But here's what we often forget. 
Hell becomes hotter not just because sin becomes greater. Hell becomes hotter for those who have had more light of the Gospel and then rejected that light. This is a warning to what I would call good Christian folks or typical people who are good folks. You know, we have a responsibility. The more light given to us, the more responsibility we have to live in line with that light. And we never want to reject God's truth. As Christians, we always want to become soft to God's truth. We don't want to become a place that is like Bethsaida. Now let's continue with the, the text. The good shepherd provides truth, is the next point. Mark 6.33 Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. If you've ever studied boats, you know that boats typically have sort of a unique look to them. They have a recognizable look to them. Oftentimes, boats have a sort of unique sails that are, have certain designs in them, so you can see the boat on the lake, and you can recognize the boat on the lake. One of the things I noticed that I was studying when it, in the gospel, when it talks about the disciples and, or the apostles getting on the boat, it never says a boat. It always says the boat. Apparently, there was one unique boat that Jesus and the apostles used. It was a large enough boat to accommodate all of them. And it must have had sort of a distinct look to it, possibly a distinct sail to it. So when Jesus and the apostles got on the boat and sailed someplace, people on the shore could see it, they could recognize it. And that is what happened here. Jesus and the apostles are sailing someplace. They see the boat, they recognize the boat, and they run to where the boat is going. Obviously, they didn't have strong wind at this point because it's a four-mile trip by sea, eight-mile trip by land. And what happens is the people actually outrun the boat and get to where he is going ahead of him. And why were the crowds following him? The Gospel of Mark doesn't tell us, but the Gospel of John does tell us what was the primary motivation of this crowd to follow Jesus. John 6, 2 says, And the large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. The majority of people in this crowd did not need healing. They were following Jesus because of entertainment value. They wanted to see him do healing. This is before television. This is before YouTube. This is his fan club. These are the groupies. These are the people that you're actually trying to get away from. He's trying to get a break from them. But what does Jesus do when he comes ashore and realizes the groupies have beat him there? When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. The Greek word for compassion is an interesting word. It's the word splagizomai. Now, not that I want you to remember that word, 
but it means to feel something in your gut. Have you ever seen a situation and felt so compassionate and heartbroken for it? You can actually physically feel it in your gut. That is what happens when Jesus sees this crowd. Even though they're there for superficial reasons, even though him and the disciples need a break and need to get away, what does Jesus do? He actually has compassion on them to the point where he actually genuinely feels it and he genuinely cares about them. Incidentally, this is the same way that Jesus feels about you and he feels about me. He has compassion on us and he genuinely feels that. Even if we're following him, for superficial reasons, even if we're following Him for the wrong reasons, Jesus genuinely cares about us. In fact, He saw this crowd. It says He saw them and He saw them like sheep without a shepherd. That doesn't mean much to us because we don't spend much time with sheep, but in this context, at this time, this means so much. Sheep, and I did a little research on sheep in preparation for today. Sheep are very vulnerable animals. Sheep are animals that cannot take care of themselves. They cannot feed themselves. They're terrible at protecting themselves. They cannot clean themselves. They don't know how to find water unless water is put in front of them. One of the things I learned, sheep can actually roll over on their back and get stuck on their back and literally die because they don't know how to roll back off their back. Sheep are in desperate need of a shepherd to care for them and to protect them. And Jesus realizes this group, this group of groupies, he has compassion on them, and they are like sheep without a shepherd. Incidentally, the Bible describes in the Old Testament, uh, Israel, the people of God, when they're without a leader, they're also described as sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus is going to be the good shepherd. And what does he do as the good shepherd? He decides to teach them. For lost people, we don't often think what people need is spiritual truth. We don't usually think they need a good sermon. We don't think they need teaching, but Jesus says the secret for them, that what they need is spiritual truth and they need to be taught spiritual truth. So Jesus, out of compassion for them and seeing them as lost and helpless, begins to teach them spiritual truth. In fact, I was thinking about this as I was studying in John 8.32. It says, and you will know the truth, and the truth is what sets you free. One of the truths that the Bible tells us is the problem in our life is always sin. The solution in our life is always Jesus. No matter what your problem is, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your relationships, it's always a sin issue. The solution is always Jesus, and the truth will set you free. Matthew 4.4, 4, 
And Luke 4, 4 says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the picture we have is that we need to constantly be feeding ourselves on God's spiritual truth from his word. It's important as physical food for us in our daily lives. So spiritual truth is not an optional thing. It's an essential thing for life. I'll give you an example. This past Thursday, we were at the men's breakfast. The men's breakfast meets on usually Thursdays, uh, once a month, down in 6 a.m., down in the gym. And as men, we were talking about uh, a movie that's out. It's a movie called Unplanned. Remember that, guys? And it's a movie about a lady who was involved in the abortion industry and Planned Parenthood and saw it for what it was and, and left that industry. And one of the things we said is, how is it that some people can see a child in a womb as a choice, where to us it's so clearly a gift from God? Why, why do we see that and other people are blind to that? Well, a couple things. One is because we become a Christian and all of a sudden Jesus sends his spirit in our heart. So we start to see things differently. But as you spend more time in God's word, the spiritual truth of God's word begins to reformat the thinking patterns of your brain. So you start to see things the way God does. We were just realizing, you know, people who see a, a child as a choice, they're lacking spiritual truth. They're desperately in need of spiritual truth, which is why Jesus here teaches them. And spiritual truth, it reformats everything about us, not just the big choices like abortion. It reformats us the way we think about loving one another when the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. It reformats the way we spend our money. It reformats the way we live our marriage. <laughs> everything is reformatted by in drinking on God's spiritual truth. Now the third point as we continue is this. The good shepherd provides food. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. What happens is the disciples are talking to Jesus. They say, you know, you've been giving a long sermon to these guys. I know they need spiritual truth, uh, but it's about time for them to go. We're in the woods. They can't all go to Bethsaida if the crowd is 20,000 people. Bethsaida was at most 2,000 people. They would completely overwhelm Bethsaida. There wouldn't be enough food. They need to head back around the lake and find a place to get something to eat. There's no fast food. There's no Subway. There's no Jimmy John's. There's no McDonald's. And I personally think that the apostles are tired. They want to get a break and send them home. And this is what Jesus says. The apostles say, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread? Give it to them to eat? While the apostles want to send the people away, Jesus has a different plan. And in the Greek, it's interesting because when it says you give them something to eat, it's written in the imperative and the emphatic tense. No, 
Don't send them away. You are the ones that are going to feed them. They're overwhelmed. How can we feed these massive crowds? In fact, in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, it tells us that Philip was the one who was the bean counter and did the math in his head and said 200 denarii wouldn't even be enough to feed this crowd. A denarii, one denarii is a day's wage for a worker in that day. So this is talking about maybe $30,000 wouldn't be enough to feed this people. Now remember, prior to this mission trip, they were told to go without money and without food. They were told to live off the generosity of others. At this point, they don't have money. They don't have extra food. They have to live off the generosity of others. And they have nothing to feed this crowd. But didn't Jesus promise when they went on their mission trip that he would provide everything they needed to accomplish what he had commanded them to do? If Jesus had now told them to feed the crowd, even though they have no food, even though they have no money, Jesus will have to provide them the ability to feed the crowd. In fact, Jesus asked them, so what do you have? Mark chapter 6, verse 38 says this, and he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. By the way, Mark doesn't tell us where this came from. The Gospel of John does tell us where this food came from. It was interesting. John chapter 6, verses 8 through 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what is that for so many? I thought about this a little bit. Five loaves of bread? What is a little kid doing running around with five loaves of bread? I think his mom overpacked for him a little bit. Anybody else notice that? Let me give you a, a little bit of help on this. When you, we think of loaves of bread, we think of big loaves, sliced up. But in this day, a loaf of bread would have been more like a pita bread. They would have been small in nature, small in size. The fish would not have been the kind that you, you, know, you, you pull out of the ice holes, the real big ones, or even the medium ones. They would have been pickled fish, which would have been a little bit bigger than sardines. What we have is the, the, the apostles don't have any food. They're living on the generosity of others. And the generosity that was given to them was a little kid's lunchable. Five small loaves of bread and two small fish. That's not even enough to feed the apostles, much less the 20,000 people in the crowd. It's a lunchable. And here is where it gets interesting. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So to sit down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. What Jesus wanted them to do is stop milling around, sit down, get organized. We need aisles because we're going to use the apostles as waiters because we're going to feed everybody off of a lunchable. 
And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. Can you picture the scene? Everybody is sitting down in groups of fifties and hundreds, and Jesus is up there with the lunchable, little kids' lunch in front of him, and he prays and blesses it. We're going to eat. But what does he do? As the apostles come to him, he begins breaking the bread and breaking the fish. And as he breaks it, it starts to multiply in his hands, consistently multiplying in his hands. And I imagine the apostles would take the loose folds of their garments and hold them up and that he would just put the food into the folds of their garments and they would go running out into the crowd to the groups of fifties and the groups of a hundreds and they, they would let all this food down and get back in line and Jesus would just keep dividing it and just keep multiplying it. It's like a creation miracle itself, constantly creating bread, constantly creating fish out of nothing. I don't know how long this took, but it was an amazing display of God's power. Mark adds to this fact, he says, and everyone ate and was satisfied. The word satisfied, it was actually originally used in the Greek to describe what would happen when you put a bag of oats onto a horse's mouth and the horse would eat until he couldn't eat anymore because he was completely satisfied. So people didn't get just a taste of bread and a taste of fish. They ate until they were full of bread and full of fish. In fact, then it says Mark chapter 6, 42 through 44. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now, why did they pick up the leftovers? Is it because Jesus is against lettering? Is it because this is part of Jesus' save the planet or his Green New Deal thing? Absolutely not. It was actually meant to be an extra blessing for the apostles. Remember, they started out hungry, no time even to eat. And when they got to the other side and saw the crowds out of the crowd, even though there was 12 hungry men, they were given a, a, a lunchable. The kid gave up his lunch. Now, they end up with plenty of food, don't they? Now, I've always pictured this as uh, either trash barrels or big laundry baskets that they picked up. Incidentally, the Greek term for basket here is very specific. It's not a trash barrel. It's not a laundry basket. It's the kind of basket that people would use in that day to take their lunch when they were going somewhere. So what Jesus did is he gave them each a small basketful of food. He packed their lunch for the next day. They don't need it right now because everyone has already eaten and been satisfied. Now, what can we learn from this? Jesus does his greatest work through us and through our inadequacies. Now, notice the flow of the text. We had started out 
with the apostles were tired. The apostles were hungry. The apostles were trying to get away from people. They get to the other side of the lake and the people followed them. The very thing that they wanted to get away from. But Jesus, instead of being tired of the people, had compassion on the people and he taught the people. And then he challenged his apostles to give what little food they had to meet the needs of the crowds. To give what little energy they had to meet the needs of the crowd. The little food they had was nothing more than a kid's lunchable. But Jesus multiplied that. And he made it enough to meet the needs of the people. Plus, even pack a lunch for the apostles for the next day. Now, Jesus was giving them... And he's giving us a principle that's worth following. Jesus does his greatest works through us, oftentimes, not apart from us. He does his greatest works through us when we're feeling weakness, when we're feeling tiredness, when we're feeling inadequacy, and when we don't have enough. But we follow what Jesus has commanded to do in our times of weakness, in our times of inadequacy, and Jesus multiplies it and blesses it. And Jesus could have done this a whole different way, couldn't he? He could have done like they did in the Old Testament, where manna just magically showed up on the ground. Jesus didn't want to do that. He wanted to do his greatest miracle through his people meeting the needs of those around him. I think of when Paul writes this, you know, when I am weak, then I am strong because the power of Christ rests in me. When he's at the end of his resources, that's when Jesus Christ is the one who gives him the strength to make it through. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors of Christ as if God was making his appeal through us. Let me summarize what we picked up and learned from this. Number one, we see Jesus has great compassion on the people. Great compassion on those who are lost. We also saw that spiritual food, Jesus saw is just as important as physical food. And lastly, Jesus did his greatest work through his apostles in their inadequacy, in their weakness, when they sought to obey his word and give up what little they actually had. Jesus blessed it and multiplied it and made it more than enough. This was not the only time, incidentally, that Jesus breast bread and broke it in front of his apostles. A little later, when Jesus was in Jerusalem, the night he was betrayed, he set up the Lord's Supper, where he also blessed bread. He also broke bread, and he gave it to his apostles. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. And the idea is, is, as his apostles would continue to eat on Jesus and feed on Jesus, Jesus is the one who would sustain their spiritual life. And as we eat on Jesus and sustain ourselves on Jesus, he sustains our spiritual life. But that spiritual life Jesus being the bread of life is not just for us. 
It's bread that is to be taken to the vast crowds around us who are equally as hungry and also in desperate need of Jesus and the life he has to give. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.